Hello and welcome. My name is Danny Carlson. I'm NAESP's Assistant Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. With us today, we have Stephanie Hirsch. Stephanie is the Executive Director of Learning Forward, which is an organization that focuses on professional learning for educators. Stephanie, thanks for joining us on the NAESP Advocacy Podcast. Thanks, Danny. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Great, great. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well, uh, what Learning Forward does uh, and, and sort of really really focuses on um, is really core to the work um, of, of what principals do on a daily basis. So um, I'm excited for the conversation. Uh, I, think, I think most of our listeners have a, a pretty good idea about what Learning Forward does and, and who you are. But uh, let's start with kind of what is Learning Forward and, and kind of what, what is your core mission? Uh, thank you. I wish, um, I believe like you, that most of the listeners knew Learning Forward. <laughs> so that makes me feel good. Thanks for starting that way. Um, so uh, first of all, our, we have a new vision. Are we kind of um, improved our vision last summer with the help of our Board of Trustees? Our vision statement, and I know most organizations have these in school districts have it, and our vision is equity and excellence in teaching and learning. And to be honest with you, for the last um, six years, it has only addressed excellence. And while we knew equity was a, was a foundation of our work, we didn't put it out in front. And so I'm really proud of the fact that our board had the foresight to recognize that and said, let's, let's put it front and center. We also recognize that that may have implications about how we work and where we work in the future. Our mission as an organization is to develop leaders who, to, um, who can build and sustain effective professional learning systems. And we uh, define leaders in the broadest sense um, of the word. These are formal and informal leaders. And as we know, teachers lead from within the classroom um, all the way through school boards and elected officials. Uh, we, but we do think about leaders as people who have influence and impact on others. Uh, uh, recently, an individual said, it sounds like that you all are trying to um, influence the influencers. And I said, yeah, that's a good way of capturing uh, what we're trying to do. We're trying to give them the knowledge, the tools, and the skills to build those great professional learning systems. That's great. That's helpful. Um, I think one thing in, in, in education, we, we often get, we get um, started in conversations and, and we talk about things and we get, um, we have kind of, you know, the buzzwords. And um, I think most, most folks, when we kind of talk about um, professional learning, understand, you know, what that means. But before we kind of do a deeper dive into some of these things, what, just the kind of fundamental question of why does professional professional learning matter? Well, I love that question because all we have to do is look across our country. All we have to do is visit any school and we recognize the variability in teaching and the variability in outcomes that occurs from classroom to classroom and school to school. And I think we all share the desire that all of our students experience great teaching every day and that every student has amazing potential 
to impact um, his or her world. And our job as educators is to make sure that they fulfill um, their potential. And every day we have teachers who recognize that they have challenges and opportunities with students in front of them and and are doing absolutely the best they can every day with the tools and the knowledge and the skills they have. So professional learning is all about supporting educators, uh, teachers, principals, and others with new knowledge, new research, new skills that they need to accelerate um, the learning of the students they serve. I don't know any other way to do that. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. I used to, I served on a school board uh, for three terms and we would have all these conversations about all these ways in which we were going to close achievement gaps in the school district and you know, all these new programs and everything that we would adopt. And, and my big question always was, what's the learning that educators are going to have to ensure that what this program uh, promises is actually going to have the intended impact? And why aren't we just thinking about how we invest more resources in the educator, educator learning so that they have what they need to support students. And I would argue, you know, it wasn't about investing in, in new transportation systems or new technology. It was about who's in front of kids every day and what can we do to help them be their best. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think, this is kind of a, I'm, I'm trying to think how to ask this question, but do you think education sort of writ large, K-12, uh, do you think we, do you think the system sort of does a good job in recognizing that, you know, when a, a teacher or a principal sort of enters the profession, um, that, that that's the beginning of, of a process of, of a continuum to, to grow, to learn, to develop, um, and eventually to, to be able to, to sort of extend, extend one's own, own talent? Uh, or do you think the system puts too much um, sort of st- stock or sort of too much in the idea that you sort of become a teacher and you know that 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 the the system doesn't recognize sort of that need to improve and kind of become better and coach and and sort of all those things that you would find in other professions Uh, i i love that question and i love the opportunity to address it so first off i think educators recognize that if you've been in education more than five years, you recognize that when you entered the profession, you did not know everything you needed to know in order to be successful in whatever role um, you're serving. And that it is a process of learning and a process of change throughout your career. Um, I believe all of us recognize that. Um, I think there are, but I'm not sure the public recognizes it. Like, the public sees teachers graduate and assume, okay, you know everything, you've been certified as a teacher, go teach, you know what to do. And there isn't a lot of respect and understanding for the process of growing and learning that educators um, need throughout their career. And I think the other part of that is that systems recognize it, but 
they often don't have the conditions and the resources to support it. And so they put new teachers into roles that um, are beyond their skill set for a brand new teacher. They don't have experiences from which to draw from to be able to problem solve on the spot. And they don't have mentors um, who can help them. And oftentimes they're in a grade level where you know the majority of the other teachers are in exactly the same spot. And so it's almost like the uh, blind leading the blind and trying to figure it out. Now I have faith, they're doing their best they can they're really committed, they're high energy, and in some cases they will figure it out, but they're experimenting on students when if they had mentors, if they had a better situation, there would be a lot more guidance so that they would uh, more quickly um, accelerate their own competence and be able to accelerate their impact on their students. Interesting. Yeah. No, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you in a little bit, a little bit about why, why you think um, sometimes these um, programs that support professional learning um, seem to get um, either axed or sort of deep, deprioritized. Um, but no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think uh, that speaks to a lot of what, you know, we sort of hear just, you know, educators, principals and others, and just, um, when we're talking about professional learning is that these are really the basic when, when we talk about this um, notion of support um, this is kind of some of the most basic uh, needs of, of an educator um, in the sort of educator workforce is is the supports to become better to learn and grow and and and, and to keep up with with the research and and, and trends um, and, and it's not a sort of static position that <laughs> as you said you sort of yeah. leave the leave the you know your 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 uh, preparation program and all of a sudden you're you're plopped in and you have all the answers um, it's 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 a process right uh, let's shift gears a little bit um, want to talk about ESSA um, there was in ESSA, um, some prov provisions specifically around uh, professional development. Um, and so um, when we talk about sort of Title II, um, so these these funds that, that go down to, to states and then into districts, um, there were some provisions in ESSA that um, created, a, created a, a definition around this um, and, and some other things. So, so we'd just love to hear from you, um, what, what was in ESSA as it relates to professional learning? Uh, love to answer that. Uh, I have to tell you a very old story. Um, so I've actually been working on this as a definition <laughs> since probably the beginning of my career with um, Learning Forward, which was then National Staff Development Council. And I remember the first time that um, Congress was thinking about changing it and Senator Reed from Rhode Island, um, his staff faxed me uh, what they were thinking about putting what? in the law. And th this is how long ago it was because it came on a roll fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even know if you know what that means or some of the listeners may not know what that looks like. But I came back to my office and there was this big wound of paper <laughs> coming off a machine <laughs> to say this is what we want professional learning to be and we want to support. And I describe it as the catalog of professional development like we want to give you this money and you can use it for all this entire list you know here are all the things 
um, that professional, these dollars can be used to support in your district, including, um, of course, money for class size reduction. So it was, you can use it for class size reduction, you can use it for partnerships with higher ed, you can, and then you can use it for, and it was like every subject you could imagine. So it's probably looked a lot like what at that time school districts put in their PD catalogs. Um, what I love about where we are today and what I'm very, very proud of because this has been a big part of my life's work is shifting us from a catalog and menu uh, mindset that this is just about offering teachers workshops to really changing our schools into learning communities, creating a learning culture, and saying that true authentic professional learning occurs among a group of teachers, a team of teachers who share collective responsibility for the success of all the students, you know, in the same grade level or course and who have time during the school day for uh, regular meetings to learn, to problem solve, and to plan um, high quality lessons for their students. Um, and so if you go to the definition today, think words like shared uh, responsibility or collective responsibility, words like at the school, words like job embedded, this is the support you get when we're done planning and we, you know, we've got our lessons for the next week. We've reviewed our curriculum. We go in the classroom and job embedded means we now get coaching. So I'm thrilled that so many districts um, are using their Title II dollars for instructional coaches. So teachers get the feedback that they need and want. Um, and so that's a huge shift from a, a mental model of professional development is the adult pullout program to professional learning. It defines what I do every day as a professional and the support I get every day to get better and have immediate impact with my students. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really great. It's, it's really interesting. Well, first of all, your, your long track record is uh very interesting and, and impressive because, um, you know, others, other, others of us who kind of uh, have, you know, more recently gotten into this stuff know that there's a, a lot of folks like you who have been fighting, fighting these battles for, for a long time. So uh, much respect. Um, on the definition it, uh, itself, I mean, I, I, everything you said is, you know, is 100% right um, in terms of of, of, of this definition and, and sort of what it means for ESSA. Um, one of the things I think you, you, you sort of mentioned, which I, I think is interesting, is just that it's this idea to kind of um, try to shift uh, these professional learning opportunities away from these kind of one-off um, sort of sit and get workshops um, kind of flavor of the day um, into, I think, a word that is actually in the definition, which is sustained. Um, right. What is that? Mm -hmm which is, which makes total sense, but what is that? So you, you kind of mentioned the ongoing coaching and um, the job embedded going back into schools and actually implementing these things, but what is the vision behind the idea of kind of sustained professional learning? Well, the research tells us that, you know, if we don't invest um, up to, I mean, about 40 hours in, in what we're really trying to become expert at, that all of our efforts are wasted. Um, we have a, 
we have a saying that we use often when we're trying to help people understand the standards for professional learning. And we say training without follow-up is malpractice. Hmm. If someone goes to a workshop and hears some incredibly powerful ideas that they really want to take back into the classroom, but they don't get any follow-up support, review, coaching, then they'll actually be able to take about 10%. So when people talk about, we don't have enough resources um, for professional learning, you know, one of the first things I want to ask is in how, how much of your resources are geared at just offering workshops mm-hmm. is, you know, how much is that part of what your system um, actually approves and offers for teachers? So sustain, you know, and we all know that a lot of districts, a lot of schools suffer from whatever itis it is, how many different things they're trying to implement in a year. And so <laughs> I often say at the school level, you got to pick, you got to prioritize two or three things that you're going to learn and implement well across all classrooms. And that's a, that's an example of a sustained effort. We're all working toward the same thing for the amount of time that it takes. And then I think the sustained effort at the classroom level among teams of teachers, what we've been advocating recently Sustained means a deep study and appreciation of your curriculum, Mm. of the standards your students are expected to master, and not looking at strategies in isolation of the content and the pedagogical uh, content um, knowledge that you need in order to ensure your students' success. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple examples of sustained. Yeah, no, it's great. I think um, you. I, I would imagine if you'd go around the country and, and talk to teachers everywhere, I, I think if if they see if they hear that that folks are making an effort to to try to make um, their PD, you know, some some semblance some semblance of you know co- cohesion uh, in an attempt to make it sort of ongoing and sort of like you said to not uh, feel like it's um, um, you know a little you know, one off one off initiative after another. I I think, uh, you know, teachers appreciate that as well. Um, well, I think, yeah, t- the number one thing teachers tell us they need to be able to improve their t- teaching is they need more time for collaboration, more mm-hmm. time for problem solving around what's happening in their classroom, more feedback about what's working and not working in the classroom, you know, other people's perspectives. Um, and that's what the the new law, the new definition is supposed to represent. It also, you know, it has right there classroom focused. So that's really important too. And when I speak to people, you know, at the state and district level, I remind them that these dollars, these from Title II, there is a clear shift away from what the system wants to make sure everybody does to looking at your schools um, and listening to your shared leadership teams on what they've identified they need to do because the law also calls for, uh, the definition also calls for Mm data-driven and evidence-based. So Mm -hmm. if you can point to the data and then point to the evidence that says why the direction you've chosen is the right direction. And if you've chosen a particular program, then that, you know, do you have the evidence that that program is the right program for your school and for your constituency? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 
that makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you, do you, have you found, I know that you're, that you are travel uh, a fair amount and are in districts and, and talk with a lot of folks. Do you find, um, I guess this, um, the ESSA definition maybe specifically, but just in general that, that there's been a, a trend, at least a, a push and effort to, to, to try to move to kind of um, sort of the cohort model, professional learning and learning for, in sort of networks and, and, and that versus the, what you mentioned, kind of the um, individualized kind of approach is, do you, do you, is, is that, is, is, first of all, is that happening? And, and, and if so, is how, how long, how long has that been going on? Oh, I think it's happening. Um, I'm excited by what we see and learn from our members, our stakeholders. Um, I don't think it's happening fast enough mm. <laughs> and I don't think it's impacting um, enough educators, but where it is happening, you see results and I've got to believe that those outcomes will inform practices in other places that maybe don't, um, are skeptical of the potential um, results that they can get from um, this way of investing. The other thing I've thought about is our millennials who are entering teaching, you know, have grown up as thinking of themselves as members of communities and networks, and mm. they don't want to work in isolation. Mm. Um, they're always connected. And so I think it's a lot easier to shift them in, I mean, to put them into these communities of practice and learning teams or PLCs, because that's the way they want to work. That's the way they want to teach. Hmm. And I think we struggle more with teachers who entered the profession with the mindset that I get to close the door and I get to decide, you know, and I'm in charge of my classroom and, you know, and, everybody expected you to be in charge and expected you to be an expert too. And so at no fault of their own, they just haven't had as much experience in life around successful collaboration. And I do believe when you expose people to new practices that have an impact on their teaching and on their students, they are more open to rethinking how they work with others and how they work in the classroom. Um, one of the, you know, one of the things I have gotten a lot of over the years are people who say, yeah, but you haven't met my faculty. You know, I want to introduce you to these three people who are so resistant to change. Mm -hmm. And I think we've kind of done that to ourselves. A, how many things have you tried to change in how many years? And so they just kind of, you know, create a shell around themselves to protect themselves from one more new thing because we haven't been sustained. We haven't supported they invest in something and then all of a sudden the school or the district's gone on to something else. Yeah. And the second thing we know from the research is the number one motivator for teachers invested in professional learning, <clears throat> excuse me, is the, is the, does actually the belief that they're going to learn something that's going to have an impact on their students. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. all about the students and that's why people are in education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, the, the, um, kind of millennial, kind of younger, um, sort of, I don't know, aspiring educators, um, uh, folks who are considering the profession. It's interesting in, in sort of light of, of everything, the conversation around sort of teacher shortages um, and sort of, you know, declines in um, 
um, sort of teaching candidates entering schools of education. It's interesting because what you, what you mentioned about their desire for professional learning um, networks, PLCs, um, is that, you know, that kind of goes to, I think, when you look at some of the things around, um, you know, why even teachers might decide to, to sort of stay or go is just the, um, you know, issues like support and, um, you know, almost almost working conditions and um, feeling like you're you're supported. Um, it's it's interesting that that the that the a shift to that model um, be really interesting to sort of see the the impact um, on things like um, you know teachers decide. To, you know, deciding maybe to, to stay in the profession longer because it's a, a different level of support. Um, and, and, and certainly, um, you know, leading to improved student achievement, you know, better success sort of in their role. Um, just got me thinking when you, uh, when you said that about sort of, you know, the, how teachers sort of view it as well. Well, and, you know, one of the things we know is that teacher turnover is huge, but look at the places where it occurs and look at the schools where it occurs. So mm -hmm. te teachers will accept challenging um, teaching assignments if they are in a school where they feel supported by a great principal, um, where they feel supported by colleagues and they're not working in isolation. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, if you, the reason teachers leave is A, they feel isolated, B, they don't get the support they need, C, that, you know, they're, they don't have the principle they need to be able to continue to encourage them to stay in the profession and help them feel, you know, valued and trusted and supported. So um, I don't think it's, I don't think teachers leave equally across this country from every school. Um, I think there's a lot of difference in terms of the characteristics of the school where teachers leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, but it's it's sort of interesting that like certainly not a panacea for kind of all those issues, but issues of, of isolation, support, um, you know, school leadership, um, really well well designed and sustained professional learning um, at least can be very helpful in, in in sort of you know keeping those folks certainly in the profession and, and also supporting them and, and sort of helping them grow. Well, and I, and I think. If we can also refer to professional learning as just good support, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's very broad. Sometimes if we use the word professional learning or professional development, people still jump to a workshop or training. Mm -hmm. But if we just think of it as professional support, then we can think of it as coaching and feedback and um, collaboration and maybe an occasional course or training session, but it's the whole spectrum of educator support. Mm -hmm. Yep, no, absolutely. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, let's talk about our favorite uh, a federal program. Now, I, I don't have a favorite federal program, but uh, Title II, um, of course, is uh, so important for, for teachers and principals. Um, this, um, uh, more than $2 billion uh, program um, is just so critical states um, and states and districts um, to be able to support um, teachers through uh, professional professional development opportunities, among other things. Um, why let's, I'm going to talk, we're going to, we're going to talk about a few things as it relates to title two, but why, 
when you go around and, and, and you're talking with, with folks and policymakers, um, what, do you, what do you say about Title II? Why does it matter? Well, it's the only federal program that directly supports teachers um, in improving teaching and learning. So all the other programs are directed you know, at the student. This is the only one that is actually for the educators. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is just the whole notion that we've set high standards for students. Um, we've put programs in place to support students. Uh, we have equally in many states um, high standards for what we expect of teachers and leaders. And the federal dollars make sure that we have the dollars um, spread across the country to make sure that teachers and leaders can meet the high standards we expect of their performance. Um, I would say also that in many, too many cases, um, district budgets, you know, can pay to have the lights on and the salaries and Unfortunately, there are no dollars left for anything um, beyond that. And so in, in too many places, Title II um, are the only dollars available to districts to support educator improvement. So those are a few things I say. Mm -hmm. So do you, find, um, do you find that as it relates to um, sort of a district budgets, when there's all these required required kind of services and payments and, and things, you know, that they have to do. So generally, do you find that kind of PD for, for teachers and, and principals that that is either an afterthought as it relates to, to sort of their budget, or it's, it's certainly one of the things that if, if there's not um, a lot of extra change lying around that it's, it's something that, uh, that sort of often gets cut. Yeah, I think it's a number that shifts. Okay. Um, just like I think there are other things in district budgets that shift according to how many dollars they're going to have that year to spend, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think it, it shifts because of the low confidence level and the impact of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's why the president you know, cut it entirely, cut Title II from the budget. It's why the House originally cut it out of the federal budget is because as we have done a really poor job of documenting and demonstrating the impact of the use of Title II dollars. And so one of the things everybody who's listening to this podcast really needs to do is first find out you know, what are your Title II dollars fund? Um, oftentimes they're mixed with other local dollars and that's fine. But the most important thing is to identify um, what, how are dollars supporting professional learning and how is professional learning defined in your context? So if it's supporting coaches, then begin to collect data on the impact of coaches. And that can be, you know, qualitative data as well as quantitative data. Our legislators, our decision makers, no matter if they're at the state, at the local, your school board level, or at the federal level, hear very rarely about the importance of Title II and the difference it has made. Like they heard the importance of it 
which is why it was put back into the budget, but we still haven't delivered on the impact of it. And that's what they need next. And we need great stories from every state and preferably every congressional district that we could um, then take to Congress when they have these conversations, take to our state representatives when they have conversations. So in every teacher, every principal, I believe has a great story to document. And I know, and it really doesn't take that long a time. You know, it can take a, it's about a page worth of writing maybe to be able to document the impact and the evidence on students. And there's many ways in which you can do that. And I think we all have that responsibility. We, you know, we have to, we, when we accept Title I, Title IV dollars, we're always collecting data on what are the results. And we just haven't done that for Title II. Mm-hmm. And so for the next few years, we better focus our attention there. Couldn't agree more. Um, and, and just want to underscore something you said about sort you know, the, the stories um, and sort of uplifting those, um, those models and examples and, and uses. Um, yeah. I mean, as, as you mentioned, the, the last two budgets, um, I mean, called for the complete elimination of the program. I mean, not a hundred, hundred million dollar haircut or not a, cut the program cut in half. I mean, complete elimination. Um, and because of, I think a, a lot of work of, of, of a lot of, um, folks and organizations and, and, and practitioners, um, you know, the, the program was preserved, um, for, for FY 2018 and FY 2019. Um, but as, as you mentioned, uh, more fights certainly to come on that. So just, just really want to underscore that. And, and we at NASP, I, I know you are as well, but we're really going to really um really working on on that piece of it is to really collect those those stories and, and and make clear um why this program matters in in congressional members in their districts and their states how it's being used and and sort of you know you know what is that impact on on student achievement um right i did want to ask you though this i mean it on this on this issue where you know the the program has been called for Elimination and, and 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 this was you know this is the, certainly the, you know the Trump administration but there's been this has been a, an ongoing fight and there's been a lot of you know questions about the program and sort of efficacy and, and sort of impact but why is it why are we at this place right now um, you just started this podcast this conversation talking about you know the just the enormous need and you know for you know funding for supporting educators to become quite frankly, you know, improved at their job to, to, to sort of be the best practitioner that they can be, to have sort of the greatest impact on student achievement. So folks agree on that, and yet we're in a, conver- we're in a conversation where the, pro- the federal program that, that supports their ability to do that uh, is in the crosshairs year after year to be completely eliminated. Uh, wh- how, how, did, how did we get to, to this? Uh, Well, I think there's a a few reasons and maybe some of these will resonate and others you'll, maybe you'll disagree with, I don't know. Um, So one is going back to the issue of if you're in the department and you're looking at the data that you have collected from states over the last decade about what has Title II accomplished, you're collecting data on Um, programs that where we've invested 
Title II dollars, you're, you're looking at maybe the number of teachers served. Um, you maybe are looking at class, the percentage of dollars that went into class size reduction. Um, you're also potentially looking at how much of these dollars have gone into purchasing coaching services for teachers, okay? You're looking at inputs, you're not looking at outputs. And so you're wondering, so we're just buying stuff, but we don't know what the stuff, we, the impact of the stuff that we bought. So that's just, you know, and people who are looking for results and don't see results begin to question the investment. The other thing is, and I know we're all aware of this, is in Title I and Title IV, people are spending dollars on professional development. I mean, that's a big part. Building capacity is a big component of Title I. So if we don't see distinct outcomes in professional learning from Title I and Title II, then we go to the argument that this program is redundant, that the schools that need it most, Title I schools, are getting dollars that they're already using professional learning. Why do they need the Title II dollars? So that's a, I mean, I'm almost afraid to say that out loud and you can decide whether you want to share that, but that's another element of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and let's not fool ourselves because the, the only reason it, we got it back was because A, yes, there was an outcry from the profession and from the individuals and the stakeholders who reached out to their elected representatives, but also because Congress was willing to raise the cap, the spending cap. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things got put back in the budget. And had they not been able to do that, who knows where we would have been. We may have gotten that serious. We probably would have had to compromise and taken that serious haircut. So we were really fortunate to, that all of those things happened and that we got our money back. But I can tell you, I'm confident that if we don't get those results in, and if we don't continue this sustained drumbeat, I doubt if we would be successful again. So um, I think we have a real obligation to make sure that whatever we start, that we're clear on what we're trying to accomplish and how we're going to be able to measure it, and then a commitment to report it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think all of those are, I think that your sort of upshot of it all is sort of impact uh, is just so critical. And it's something that I hear um, up on the hill all the time and asking for what is the impact of the program. Um, and so right. it, and it, yeah, and it, it, it falls on sort of all of us um, to uh, be able to, you know, to share those stories and, 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 and examples and schools and states and districts that are really leveraging those funds uh, to improve instruction. Um, just a couple, a couple minutes left, but would love just to hear if you have a couple interesting or sort of um, sort of good examples of, um, a locality or a state or something using Title II um, in an innovative way that, uh, that you think is really great? Well, um, we did a webinar a little while ago and Washington State shared its website to support its schools in um, thinking about how they align their Title II dollars toward their most important needs. But, and they actually give schools a lot of data that they can study to determine what are their greatest needs. 
and then they kind of guide them to a point where they can think about how they want to use the Title II dollars to support that. And so I'm, I'm really proud of that. Um, I think another thing is in Tennessee, the Learning Forward uh, professional learning standards, you know, are embedded in the, I think it's the, actually the evaluation instrument for principals, so that principals are thinking about, you know, how do they build a learning culture, and how do they make sure that their teachers are experiencing the kind of professional learning that's going to lead to the outcomes we want, and then they use their 3% set-aside to uh, support the development and coaching of principals um, in that state. Uh, we're also actually in the process of trying to do kind of a statewide uh, state scan of um, what are states doing and how can we also maybe create a toolkit to help states think differently about how they can be more supportive and provide more guidance to districts about using how they can use and leverage Title II so that it, it will be able to demonstrate an impact at the end of the investment. And then one more example that I uh, personally think is really strong is in Louisiana, they use a lot of their Title II dollars to support the development of teacher content leaders who understand deeply um, a state curriculum. You're not required to adopt it, but I think like 90% of the districts have adopted it. And then they offer these free trainings, um, like nine sessions for content leaders who then work on micro-credentials at the end of it to demonstrate the impact. So there you've got the impact data that you need. Um, and they do the same thing for mentor teachers across the state. But it's all uh, deep, deeply embedded in high-quality curriculum because I do believe that has to be the, the new foundation for all professional learning for teachers. There's too much evidence that has surfaced over the last several years that indicates the importance of making sure teachers have access to high-quality curriculum and then the professional learning to know how to implement it. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Those are those are excellent examples. Um, and I think most most folks know, but um, you mentioned the three percent set aside, uh, the use of that in, in Tennessee. Um, it's it's really exciting. Um, the the again, just the 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 three percent set aside is the states are um, allowed to sort of withhold three percent up up to three percent of their uh, Title II funds to. Um, do statewide activities to focus on on school leadership. Uh, Twenty four states in their state plans um, indicated that that they plan to do that. Um, you mentioned you know Tennessee, which uh, is really this great innovative program, the Principal Pipeline Partnership Grants, which focus on boosting principal pipelines in in rural areas. Uh, places like uh, Maryland are uh, you know going to use the funds to expand um, an existing program that that focuses on boosting um, assistant principals and, and, and pairing them with uh, mentors so that when they, um, you know, maybe get the key to take over the school, they're um, really up to speed on kind of all the important things that they're going to need uh, to sort of lead their school. So uh, really great stuff. Um, as I mentioned, um, and, and, and I think you, you all are as well, uh, Stephanie, but um, really over the, the next, uh, well, 
next few months and, 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 you know, through, you know, the end of the year, um, we're going to, re- uh, a full court press on, on title two, um, as, um, we gear up for the FY 2020 budget. Um, and, um, we've had conversations with, uh, you know, with, with you all and many other organizations about how we can kind of collect, uh, you know, these, these stories and in, in a way and, uh, and, and have them um, so that we can share them with uh, the policymakers and, and leaders up on Capitol Hill who are going to be making decisions about these programs. Um, so it's just absolutely crucial for, for, for these folks to, to, to know about these programs, um, you know, know sort of how widespread they are, how, how effective they are, um, how they work. Um, and really, again, the, the, the sort of the impact on the profession and, and ultimately, you know, the impact on, on student achievement. So uh, looking forward to, to, to that again, it'll, it's, it's always a kind of a uphill climb, but um, so, so important for, for, uh, for all involved. So looking forward to that. Uh, just the last, last bit, uh, I really appreciated you uh, being on. This is such a, a good conversation. Uh, professional learning is um, obviously so important for, for principals. Uh, Title II is um, an, an, an absolute top, top priority for, for us in our sort of federal legislative priorities. Uh, and you're, the, you're such the sort of whiz on, on, on the program and sort of know so much about it. And so really, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, the last question, though, is just kind of a, just the, the piece we were just talking about and sort of the advocacy. Um, what would your advice be to, to sort of um, our members, um, NASP members, as they think about um, engaging in advocacy, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, sharing their, their story with, with policymakers, maybe doing a, 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 a Hill visit? What would your advice be to, to, to them as um, they sort of engage in that process? Well, know your facts. So I think you've got to be able to know the definition that's in the law, know the degree to which what's happening for you meets that definition so you can address that and know um, and then get your story straight. Get that compelling story together and communicate often. Don't just wait for a one-time visit. Communicate often with different parts of your story. Um, Become the go-to person for Title II for your elected representative and the education staff leader for that um, office. And just make that your goal. And if we have that uh, for everybody in Congress, uh, we'll succeed. That's great advice. I love the be the expert for that for that office because the other part of that is that part of advocacy and, and that is <laughs> is is uh, you know making life easier on, on the other end for for staff and and for member of Congress. And right. If they have a point person right. where they can go to and who's knowledgeable, um, they will certainly take and take advantage of that. So, uh, well, thanks again, uh, Stephanie, for this conversation. Uh, I would encourage everyone who's listening to go and. Um, check out um, Learning Forward's website. They've got a, a lot of great resources. Um, they've got one-pagers and policy briefs and a lot of really great stuff on, on ESSA and, and all that was um, included in, in, the, in the law as it relates to professional learning. So I uh, would encourage you to take a look at that. So uh, thanks again, Stephanie. Thank you, Danny. Good luck. Best right. wishes, everyone. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks.